Welcome to Coach House Talks. So you know that we've been looking at, um, just recently, we've been looking at things like what is true joy? How do we find true joy? How do we act in joy even if we don't feel like it? Um, And what are the secrets of scripture when it comes to those things? So we're going to continue a little bit with that. I'm going to speak on finding true joy in God. So in other words, not the pursuit of happiness that the world tends to say, look, this is what you need to do, grab at things that make you happy. We're going to look at finding our true joy in God. Now, a while ago, myself and Mel had the uh, chance to attend a school reunion. Yeah, it was a little nervy at first. (laughs) You never know what you're going to bump into in these things, do you? Would we recognise people? Would they recognise us? Were all the memories good? Uh, do we want to be reminded of some of the things that went on? But I suppose the reason for reunion is to remind ourselves of the time that we had together. To simply reconnect with friendships and memories. Photographs came out and much hilarity was had as we look back on the cultural styles that we traversed in those years. For a horrible moment, I really thought there was an old photograph going to appear. <laughs> bell-bottom jeans. Come on, hands up if you remember bell-bottom jeans. Oh, okay, well, you're in my ear now. This is good. <laughs> Two-tone leather platform shoes. And that was just the lads. And lots of hair. Oh, how I long for those days. I'm not even I'm not even going to respond to that Jesse <laughs> but what I remember most from these reunions was that we and we managed to do a couple of them in the in the years that have gone by was that it didn't actually take a lot of time to rekindle the happiness and joy of the occasions of friendship and nostalgia once we'd met together in the same room once we got made uh, this is the person I was looking I remember suddenly looking at a photograph and this lad was next to me and he's going uh, do you recognise her from Abingdon Road Primary School so this is before our secondary school and I'm going oh that's such and such that's such and such that's great he said do you know who this is here I goes yeah that's my best mate that Steve Johnson that's my best mate I wonder what happened to him he said he stood next to you So sometimes it's, but once, we'd, once I'd made that connection, I could see him in the photograph, I could see him studying, and, you could, and then all of the stories about going into Manchester and buying records with the corners cut off because they were cheap in Yanks, and all these kind of different things all started to come back, and it was good to remember. So what I'm saying is that a lot of these memories, they didn't need to be dragged back into our memory banks. Once we'd made a connection, they just, boom, were there. Okay, once we'd made a connection with something, all those good memories came back. We just needed a reminder to kick our brain into gear. And these reunions acted as a catalyst to remind us of the joy of those friendships. Now you know why catalyst is called catalyst. It's there in order to spark memories and to promote discussion. So the last couple of weeks, we've had both Becca and Daniel explain to us some of the characteristics of joy. Becca reminded us that joy is not simply the human emotion of happiness and that we would do well to remember that happiness is therefore dependent upon circumstances we find ourselves in and is quite surface showing. 
Okay, so happiness tends to be the smile on our face. You know, we come to church on a Sunday and we can't walk like this, can we? So we must look like this because we're in church and we want everyone to know that we're full of the joy of the Lord and we're really happy. Not. I mean, I stand here most weeks and look at you, so I know that's not the case. So the distinction is that joy is actually something which is deeply rooted within us. Okay, not a surface emotion, not something which is just reflecting how we feel because we're having a good day or having a bad day. Joy is something which supersedes that and it's something that is deep-seated and it stands apart from our emotions. Becca led us through that kind of description. Daniel took us on a journey of discovery to uncover why we need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude and how we should choose to have joy in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 16 and 17 says, Always be joyful. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. Now, these are quite difficult things to, for us to take on board because we don't always feel happy because we trust our human emotions more than we trust actually what's going on deep down inside of us. Why should we do this? Because this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. This is part of the evidence that you belong to Jesus is that you can have joy in all circumstances and be thankful in all circumstances even when you're going through really pretty tough stuff in life. Okay? I'm kind of, you know that I'm waiting for a dental surgery. Well, I've got it. It's a week on Wednesday. And I'm pretty nervous about it, okay? I don't really want to go. I'm not happy about it. But I know that God's got me. I know that God's going before me. And actually, until I talk about it with you, it's kind of at the back of my mind. It's, it's there, but it's not there. It's not the thing which is driving me. So understanding the difference between joy and happiness is a key element in learning to be content in all things. So our reading before talked about being content. Being content in all circumstances. So this is a Sunday where we will be joining together in communion. And the act of taking emblems together reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made in order that we can reconnect the holy, that's God, and I, this, this has been blowing my mind in the last few weeks, okay? The holy wants to reconnect with the unholy. And I just want to pause there for a second because that's an enormous statement. God, who is absolutely holy, somehow wants to reconnect with those who are unholy and actually shouldn't have a way to bridge that gap. That's us. That's God. And always remains that way. Okay, there's a huge chasm between being holy, who God is and where God is, and where we are, where we find ourselves in this present time. A holy God made a way for his unholy creation, which wasn't made unholy, but it's become unholy, to come back into fellowship and friendship, to dwell together as was intended from day one. 
or day six if you want to be precise, or even more precise, because I would argue, along with scripture, that God wanted a relationship with us before time even began. Okay, so we just see the mechanics of how that happened in Genesis. But let's go with the fact that God created man on the sixth day with relationship in mind. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Okay, did you get that? To be like us. Now we like to point out in modern theology that the reference to us shows us the presence of the Trinity right at the very beginning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The us, the them that forms the Godhead. And this is the case, however, the reasoning for the statement, I believe, is all to do with the relational existence that God enjoys. And as we are made in their image, according to the context, then we are also formed in order to have relationship. We crave relationship. Think about it. We don't really like being alone. And that's because we're made in God's image. And God is relational. It's pointed out later in Scripture that our marriages, our family relationships, they are all mirrors of and should remind us of this relational status of man with God. So often it's talked about marriage being this is how God and man should be. Actually, that's how you should be in your marriages as well. Do Do we get that? Do we get the importance of what marriage is actually about here? That's why we shouldn't really mess around with the parameters of marriage outside of what the biblical parameters are okay because actually it should define what it looks like to have a relationship with God God's people are often referred to in scripture as God's children offspring of a marriage or even more intimately as the wife Hosea 2 verse 2 But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, says God. She is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. So you see this relational marriage context that God is trying to put over all of the time. Our marriages display that perfect, beautiful union that God wants with man. And I, you know, how he must despair nowadays. But all of this language within scripture is to remind us of the special status that we have in our relationship with God and the consequences of deciding to depart from his desired covenant with us. You see, communion that we're going to take shortly is so amazing. Because we see in this communion the culmination of God's efforts to reinstate that broken covenant back to us. Remember the holy and the unholy? How do we bridge that gap? How on earth do we come into the presence of the holy God? Now all of us, I think, if we kind of asked ourselves that question without any other knowledge, would go impossible. It's impossible for me to somehow reach this status. It's impossible for me to work and do things and try and prove myself 
to become holy as I recognize God is holy. When I read some of the Psalms, you kind of see the despair in people's comments when they say, how, how can this gap be bridged? How can despairing man reach a holy God? But in communion, we celebrate that God has made a way for us to have that covenant rightfully put back in place. We're reminded that we as sinful men and women, so men is a cover all there, we as sinful men have broken, we've failed in, and we've even openly denied for generation upon generation that we want God to rule over us. And this reminds us that God still chased us. He still desired to have a relationship with us, even though we turn our back and we walk away. It reminds us that we as undeserving, sinful, rejecting children, or wife, if you want to use Hosea's example, have nothing to offer in and of ourselves. We are beyond the capabilities of restoring our relationship through our own efforts. God himself had to make a way for us. Jesus living as a faithful man, and this is why it's so important that Jesus lived as a man, fulfills the requirements of a holy God. And we, as unholy men and women, benefit from Jesus' covering of righteousness, which we take upon ourselves when we accept Jesus as our saviour. And it's always a covering, okay? Covering until the day comes when we cast off this sinful mess of a body and the sinful nature that we carry around with us since the fall of man and we cast it aside and we stand in God's holy presence as we were intended to be without blemish, without fault. Beautiful creation. His beautiful creation. And when we cast that off, when we walk out of this sinful nature and this body and we've cast it down and our righteous beings that God has been perfecting through Jesus in us, we walk into the ultimate wedding feast as the true bride of Christ as it's delivered to us as it's stated in the New Testament. We come into the holy presence, unholy, made holy, And it's that sureness, it's that sentiment of promise that means that we can respond in our daily lives in joy in all circumstances. Because I can think of nothing better. I can absolutely think of no thing better. Right? So this beats sailing in 25 mile an hour winds in bright sunshine, beats it hands down. Okay, beats my relationship with Mel, which I love and enjoy, beats it hands down. My relationship I have with my children beats it hands down. The relationship I have with my granddaughter beats it hands down. With my best friends, everything beats it hands down. I am going to stand 
in the presence of the holy God who loves me. What's better than that? So it's the sureness of these promises that God has given to us in his scripture, even in our failing humanness today, we can still claim the promises. So we've got joy in the promise. We have joy in the truth. We have joy in the steadfastness of God, that God does not change his mind. He doesn't one minute go, oh, I feel like saving you today, and then the next day goes, you know what, I've had enough. Oh, I'm so thankful that God isn't like us. Think about it with your friendships. You're oh, yeah, you best friends, yeah, yeah, what happened to you? Oh, no, we just had a fallout over something. And didn't you reconcile it? No, no, we just decided to find new friends. Can you imagine if God was like that? We'd have no hope. We could never have joy because we'd just be in a hopeless condition. But it just goes to show how failing we are in the relationship side of things. So when we look at God's relationship, when we say God is our Father, and I know lots of people go, ooh, I've got real problems with this because I don't have a good relationship with my earthly father, Okay, and that happens, that's life. So what we do is we allow it to go, well, that covers and colours the way that I think of God as my father. And it's Father's Day next, next week. And yeah, we've often shied away from going, oh, yeah, we don't want to make a big deal of this. We don't want to make a big deal of Father's Day because we don't want to draw attention to people who have had a bad upbringing. But actually, we want to be talking about the true relationship with our true father, who has loved us and is totally dependent and is not like earthly fathers. We have to break some of this in the same way that we have to break some of our understanding of how relationship works. Because we look at God and we go, well, God's relationship with us must work in the same way that our relationship works with everyone around us. And it kind of does and it doesn't. Because we act in a fallen nature. We're not holy. We can't do relationship correctly but my joy is in the fact that God does. God does do relationship properly. So we have joy also in the knowledge of God's desire to pursue relationship with us. Like I said before, who are we that holy can connect with the unholy? There's nothing we can do to make ourselves holy. Absolutely nothing. You can try till you're blue in the face and many have tried. It has no effect. We come to God through Jesus alone and by faith we are saved. Teach these things, Paul says to Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict your teaching or our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. Read church history, and you will see that is exactly what happens. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they've turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. And yet, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, 
and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Now, I want us to understand and grasp what it means to have a relationship with God restored and how it is that this dictates our behaviour and how we feel. This is the crux. Why have we got joy? Why have we got happiness that exceeds all the things that we go through in life? When Paul teaches Timothy, it's in order for him to effectively lead a church, even as a young man. Timothy was a pastoring the church in Ephesus. And it was the basic principles that Paul's telling him that sets apart us from everyone else. It sets apart what's being taught. Yes, there's lots of advice on headship, eldership, marriage, submission, even slavery in Timothy's epistle. But it was all set in the context of being content in the richness of God's relationship found in Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, starting halfway through verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Here's the driver. Here's why it's been written. I want everyone to understand the truth, says Paul to Timothy. For there is one God, one mediator, who can reconcile God and humanity. That's it. One God, one mediator, who can reconcile God and humanity, the holy and the unholy, the man Christ Jesus. That's the only way. That's the truth. That's the thing that sets you apart. Stand on it. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is the message of God that God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle, this is Paul speaking, to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling the truth. Later, Paul states the reason for our changed behaviour and our deep inner change in 1 Timothy 3.16. 3.16s are usually quite good in the Bible, by the way, if you look up 3.16s. 1 Timothy 3.16, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and he was taken to heaven in glory. This is the baseline for, Tim for Paul's talk to Timothy. This is the truth I'm teaching you. Don't let anybody deceive you with anything that comes sideways, off it, upwards, downwards, sideways from it. This is the truth. Now, in light with all of that, I'll talk about the other things, about how we should behave and blah, 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 blah. But this is the truth. This is the centerpiece. And it's in line with the truth and the statement of faith. In fact, it's the faith. Okay, so when we read in the New Testament, when the epistle writers are talking about the faith, that's what they're talking about, that Jesus is God. He died for our sins. He rose again and he went to heaven and he's saving a place for us. That's the faith. Okay? Nothing else. Everything else is a sideshow. Everything else is just something to help you on that way. That is the faith. That's what set the believers apart from everyone else. Jesus has accomplished God's desire to have full relationship restored with the unholy. The unholy has been made acceptable by the actions of the Holy One. 
And there's really nothing to add to this. And that's what Paul says. There's nothing to add to this. That's the simple statement of truth. It's the reason that we can rise above all circumstances. We can battle all circumstances. We can endure pain. We can endure grief. And yet still retain peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Oh yeah, and joy. Because they're all fruits of the Spirit. They're all what's given to you when you've accepted Jesus in your life. The fruit that Scripture tells us is produced in us by the Holy Spirit and it's not by us. So we can't make ourselves happy. We can't make ourselves full of happiness and these are things which are coming from the Spirit at work within us when we've accepted Jesus as our saviour. Paul tells Timothy to work hard at maintaining this faith, this truth of Jesus and this amazing fulfilment of God's promise and it's in line with all of the apostles' teachings and the various New Testament churches, what they followed. It's in line with all of it. Nothing is gained by your own efforts or my own efforts. Nothing. God alone provides the sacrifice which covers us and it's by the work of the Spirit and our submission to this truth that raises us, the unholy, to the very throne room of God. This is amazing stuff. Solomon Solomon recognised it in the Old Testament. Everything without God is futile and worthless. Paul realised it on the road to Damascus and then spent years being trained in order that he could tell others about this truth that he had obtained. And we know it, even if we don't want to admit it. We try every way to find satisfaction. Ask yourself, how do you make, try and make yourself happy? We try everything, but nothing comes close to knowing that God holds you. See, God's made all of the moves ahead of time. He's created a way and there is nothing more to be added or to be taken away Our trust in Jesus is a move into God's promises and restoration. Accepting Jesus invites the Holy Spirit to inwardly transform this broken man and I learn to be content with the knowledge that God will bring me into his glorious presence without blemish and worthy of being called a son. True happiness is found in knowing God and that comes from submitting to the truth. When I said before that I value Mel, but God is better. I value my children, but God is better. I value my grandchildren, but God is better. That does not mean that I don't value any of those things. It means that I recognise them for what they are. Images, reminders of what my relationship with Jesus and God looks like. They are just earthly reminders of what it looks like. And I, yes, I enjoy them. Yes, I love it. But it just reminds me of what God has done to bring me into his presence. So I'll finish with this. And the indulgence of scripture and let it speak directly to us. 1 Timothy 6 verses 20 to 21 says this. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. I'm going to change it. Church. Church. Guard what God has entrusted to you. 
Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.